I was a custodian and I was taking the trash out like I normally did on my shift. And there was a rip in the front side of the bag. It was like 4.30 in the morning to throw in the trash. I didn't see the rip. All that trash, that rotten meat, that nasty, protruding, horrible smelling garbage got all over my body, my skin, and my clothes. That was the rock bottom moment of clarity where I stood right by the trash can, picked everything up, cleaned myself off to the best of my ability. I was so defeated, so demoralized that I sat on the curb right by the trash can. I put my head in my hands and I started to cry. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Marcus Ogden and dive deep into hat numbers one, two, and four, the servant, the athlete, and the entrepreneur, as we get transported on a real hero's journey through the ups and downs of life and business. Growing up in a single-parent home, Marcus beat all odds and made it to the NFL, then hit gold again with an incredibly successful company before losing it all and having to start again as a custodian, making $8.25 an hour. And only through his grit and perseverance, making a full comeback and reconnecting with his authentic self and realizing true fulfillment on his journey. This episode is a must-listen for any entrepreneur moving fast through the roller coaster of life. So without further ado, let's welcome Marcus to the Seven Hats. Marcus, welcome to the Seven Hats. Thank you, sir. How are you, my friend? Doing great. You know, Marcus, although I was never in the NFL and never experienced that kind of greatness, I can relate to a lot of your story. You know, starting with your grandma being the light of your life, as mine was, to having success, to experiencing failure, like I had, to losing everything, like I did, having to do a minimum wage job to survive, to rebuilding and redemption, and today, being in a place where you're able to give back to the community, like we're doing on this podcast. There are so many parallels, Marcus, between you and me. You know, after becoming familiar with your story, I was fired up for the Seven Hatters to learn from you and fall in love with you like I did. You know, my listeners, the, the Seven Hatters, love it when my guests get real and get vulnerable and tell a raw story. Yep. And you have such a great story. So with that, let's start at your beginning. Okay. As young children, we are very much influenced by our upbringing. And you were raised by your dad in a single parent home and your grandma on your mom's side was a big factor for you as well, right? Correct. Tell us about that time and how your childhood situation shaped you. Well, you know, you've all, for me, being raised by a single father in Washington, D.C. was really great, but it was really hard mm -hmm. because we didn't have that mom figure in the house. We didn't have that, you know, motherly love type of a situation. We didn't have that. And God bless my father, God rest his soul, he was amazing. But we also need to learn about how to deal with women. He taught us that from a male's perspective. But when my parents divorced, my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom lived in Washington DC as well. And her and my grandfather sided with my father. They were actually quite disappointed in my mother about how she did things because she left us on Christmas morning wow. uh, when I was eight years old. And we woke up and she was not there and we did not see her again, you all, for almost six months. 
So my maternal grandmother was extremely disappointed in my mother, and she ended up becoming our, you know, like our, you know, like the woman that we leaned on for everything. Like, you know, she became like a mother figure, like our, she was our matriarch, put it that way. So we spent a lot of time over there. I mean, I, was, I only lived maybe about 20 minutes away from my grandmother. So we saw her and my grandfather a lot. We were always over there. We spent the night over there. Uh, you know, my maternal grandparents were really big in helping us, like, you know, learn how to become young men. She was a teacher. So she was able to give us that importance of education at a very young age. And my grandfather worked for the Boys and Girls Club for almost six decades. He was also retired military and government. So again, just very, very great people that were very much about teaching us the more simplistic things of life. But at the same time, evolved. they gave us a lot of foundational knowledge, a lot of great building blocks that we need to have. And our father, again, love him to death, but he was trying to work. He was trying to take care of things. He got stressed out. He dealt with a lot of health issues himself from obesity to, uh, you know, high blood pressure to, you know, he had uh, kidney failure. So there's a lot of things going on with him. But our grandparents, especially our grandmother, was always right there every step of the way. Have you settled things with your mom since she left? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Paul. You know, we settled things, but then we got into it again. And, you know, I'm always real. I'm honest. I don't hold punches. So I haven't spoken to my mother now in, ooh, it'll be nine years next April. Uh, you know, it's just she's somebody that just has her way of doing things. And she's very much about herself. She has always been. And I went through some therapy and therapists told me, said, Marcus, look, my last therapist told me, Marcus, look, it's not the child's job to try to reach out to the parent. Mm. The parent should want to reach out to the child. So for me, my mom has never reached out. So as a result of that, I'm not really going to try to push the situation. And, you know, that's just really what it is. Wow. You know, you you also have an older brother, uh, Jonathan. How was that relationship? Were you close growing up? Well, that, it was great. I mean, you know, we were close growing up. He's seven years, well, six and a half years older than I am. So that was one facet, but extremely close. I mean, we all grew up in the same house, me, my dad, my brother. We were very close. You know, my brother played football, taught me a lot about the game. And so I'm 40 now. I'll be 41 next month. And my brother is 47. So we still talk, you know, not as often as we like because he's in Vegas. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, he's got a lot of things going on, not for profits, charity work, all that stuff. But our relationship has always been strong because, again, being raised in that household, we always learn how to stick together. So as a kid, were you a confident kid? Did you envision the great success that you would eventually create? Absolutely not. No, I was not confident. I was big as a child. I was picked on. I was a little bit socially awkward. Uh, I wasn't very gifted with speaking to people like I am today. I dealt with a lot of you know difficult times between being a large child and I was not super athletic in high school. I was a good football player, but I wasn't super athletic like my brother was. Then I got to college, struggled for a year, and then I got that under control and had a very good career in college and got drafted to the National Football League and things got better. But again, it was a process that I needed to go through and it really helped me get to that point, you know, you know in that regard. It's amazing because, you know, you stated that you weren't, you were a big kid and you weren't that athletic in, in high school, but you made it to the NFL, which has a probability of like, what, zero percent? Yeah, it's like 0.11%, <laughs> something crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, I did the research. Only one out of every 1,500 football players, right, in college, college football players, and it's like 4,500 high school football players can make it that far. So that's an incredible accomplishment. What drove you growing up? Were you primed to play football in terms of raw talent and you just elevated that talent? So high school, 
you know, I was playing O-line, D-line, having some fun and all that stuff. And I was a good football player, big, and I could get things done on the football field. But when I got to college, after my first year, I redshirted. And then in my second year, I was a redshirt freshman on the field. And I ended up starting as a right tackle, as an offensive lineman at right tackle. And there was a senior, all of, all of our linemen were seniors, left tackle, left guard, center, right guard, were all seniors. And you had a freshman right tackle. And then I got really beat like a drum my first game. And then came back the second game against a guy who was supposed to be a pretty decent, you know, pro potential player. And I had a really good game. And then I finished off my freshman year pretty strong. And then I worked on my craft, you know, working out in the, in the gym and came back as a sophomore, did really, really well, made all conference. And then my last two years, I was two-time All-American. But what's interesting is, is that I found out that I really do have the ability to play this game at a high, high level. When I went to the Hula Bowl in Maui and I played against guys from like Rice, Alabama, Texas, Chapel Hill, Notre Dame, uh, and I was able to see that I could hold my own against guys, you know, Florida State, all these different aspects. And it wasn't that I had anything to be worried about. Like, you know, they're football players just like I am. They might have gone to a bigger school, might have had more facilities, more things like that. But at the end of the day, I feel I'm all this, I can get it done. And so that was my first sign, you uh, ball, that I could really get it done in the NFL. And and it was hard work that that got you there because you obviously had raw talent, right? And so by getting from where you were to finally getting in the NFL, what do you th- what do you think the number one aspect of of developing was that was it a coach that was just challenging you? Did you challenge yourself? How did that go? So it was a combination. The hard work was absolutely built in me because I was able to have a strong work ethic. I was a gym rat. I did everything I was supposed to do. Then I got really fortunate to have a great coach in college, Coach Fred Dean, who played for the Redskins, and now they're the Washington football team. And he was one of the Hawks, one of their big, one of their linemen, and he was just a, a great player. He also went to a, a historical black college, Texas Southern, where the same uh, football player, Michael Strahan, went. And I was able to learn from him and he pushed me a lot during my my time. He pushed me a lot as a rookie, uh, well, a freshman, and as a starting freshman, you know, a redshirt freshman anyway. He really put a lot of emphasis on me being the best of the best and not just allowing me to say, okay, well, yeah, you're a freshman, you'll make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I knew that, but he wasn't accepting of those mistakes. And as a result of that, he made me a lot better than I knew I could be. And as a result of that, you all, that's when my whole business and my whole aspect turned around to get me where I'm at today. And, well, then anyway, as a football player that was able to be the first, and I'm still to date, the only offensive lineman ever drafted from Howard University. That That's amazing. So Howard University, right? You're playing football, the opportunity strikes, the NFL is calling. What was it like to hear that you were going to be a pro? It makes you realize that all the hard work, all the discipline, all the things that I had worked so hard to achieve could get done. And it made me realize that life is all about the sacrifice. It's all about the discipline. It's all about the focus that you're willing to put into something. Sports, business, corporate America, does it matter? And I was able to live my dream. And actually, I have a saying, my dream slash goal became an accomplishment. It became a reality. And the Jaguars drafted me out of Howard University, and I will always be very in debt to the Jaguars because they brought me from being a college football player into being a NFL professional football player. Nice. So, so you played in the NFL for six years, and you were with the Jaguars, the Ravens, the Bills, and the Titans, I believe. Correct. Uh, tell us what it's like playing at that high level uh, with all the stress and the pressure. I mean, I can't even imagine what you had to go through. So tell us a little bit about that dynamic. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, the professional level is extremely difficult, but 
It's like any other job. You're going to get out of it as much as you put in with the talent you have, which is why you have great players like Tom Brady, who Tom had decent talent, but his work ethic was legendary or is, excuse me, legendary, which is why he's the best. You think about guys like Aaron Donald, who was undersized when he came to the NFL. Now, as regards one of the best D tackles of all time. You know, these are the type of players that you play against. But what makes or breaks athletes at that level is your mindset. It's the ability to pivot and make adjustments, make tweaks when necessary. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't make it long in the NFL or at all because they're not equipped and or not prepared to figure out how to pivot or have what I call a bend, but don't break mindset. And that is what's going to make or break people from being what I call the best of the best. Do you think you had the right mindset? Oh yeah, I had the right mindset, absolutely. And I played almost six years and I had some back injuries which put me out, uh, which is, is what it is. But I always had the mindset to do my job at the highest level. And I really tried to work on being focused and disciplined. And it's exactly what I bring to my work today um, as an entrepreneur, really focusing on that in that regard. Who gave you that? Was that your dad, your grandma, coaches? Where'd you get that that mindset and discipline? It's a little bit of both. It's It's kind of a mixture. My father, without a doubt, my grandmother for sure, but my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather was an amazing individual. He's actually in the DC Boxing Hall of Fame as a trainer. Wow. And, you know, he just taught me a lot about discipline, sacrifice, you know, no excuses, putting in the hard work. And as a result of my grandfather being who he was, I was able to develop and really continue to nurture and harness that ability to be disciplined no matter what. Did he ever want you to be a boxer? Did he try to uh, convince you? Because you're like, you, you, you could be a boxer. You're a big guy. Like you can knock someone out. Yeah. Essentially, you said that, you know, it, he mentioned it a little bit, but then my father was a football player in college at Howard where I went. Uh, my brother was a football player. So I kind of just fell in love with football. And what I liked about football was I was able to play with people and be on my team and have a a whole team atmosphere. And that's what I love. The teamwork, the camaraderie, the discipline, and the overall culture enhancement perspective, which is why I chose football. Nice. Do you you think your life was balanced at that time when you were playing or were were you focused 100% on the ball? I was focused 100% on football because I was not married at the time, no children. So I was focused solely on football, developing my talents in that regard. And that was my sole focus. Got it. So you're, you're, you're playing for six years. You must have learned some really incredible lessons from your teammates and coaches. Any, anything that, that stands out that you uh, would like to uh, tell the seven headers? Sure. I'll I'll say what Jack Del Rio told me as a rookie in our rookie draft class. In order to be successful, you have to be your own CEO. If you can't be actively self-inspired, self-starting as an individual in life, you won't succeed. Kind of like this a great quote by Lou Holtz. Without self-discipline, Success is impossible, period. Yep. Great quote. Great quote. A lot of people talk about wanting to be great. They talk about wanting to get to that point of having a podcast or being a speaker or having a successful business, running a gym, being a, uh, an owner of an establishment, an executive, whatever, an athlete, boxer, football player, basketball player, baseball, it doesn't matter. But talk is cheap, like it's easy. Like I get up every morning, five o'clock, go to the gym, and I play basketball, I run, I lift. 
I take care of myself. I swim. I do core. I do push-ups. I do all these things. Like I don't look like this just because I wake up one day and say, hey, let me look like this. You know, I've made some decisions on how to eat better, drinking a lot more water, making decisions, and that really are going to affect the way in which I live my life. And a lot of people talk about they want to be in great shape, but they don't want to go to the gym. They want to eat out all the time. Again, eating healthy costs money. It does. But if you're eating healthy, the type of ROI you should get from your body and your brain having the right fuel drive should be immense. People don't think like that at times. They get very short-sighted. They get very motivated. And I'm not a motivating person. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm an inspirational keynote speaker that's a storyteller and gives you action steps that can change your life. I'm not somebody that's going to come up here and rah-rah you and give you, you know, uh, a short metaphor filled with no value or no type of concept that you can take into your own life. I don't want to do that. That's who I used to be as a speaker, which is why I got no paid jobs for two and a half years. I had to turn myself around. I had to change my way of thinking. Goes the same thing with people every single day. Are you going to do the things that, you know, after I'm finished with you, 630, I got a phone call with my business partner. Put my daughter to bed, get up, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, do it all over again. My schedule, and it's interesting, Ball, I look at myself today. My schedule is jam-packed. I want the seven hatters to understand. When your schedule's packed and you manage your time efficiently, great things happen. When I was speaking back in 2013, it was slow. I remember 2015, 16, even parts of 17, my schedule was completely open. I could I could watch like Game Show Network or Match Game 77, you know, $100,000 pyramid, cash cap. Like I'm sitting there like, well, I made my two, three calls for the day. Okay, that's it. I'll sit here and I'll watch something and I'll go train some football on the weekend and make it a plane just to barely get by. But that's okay. That's my life. And then I really start to have that mindset shift in 2018 when I learned how to kind of reestablish myself reposition myself, realign myself, and I started to have success in that right. But again, is that is this what it is? It's funny, you said motivation, inspiration. Tell the seven hatters, because I know you you distinguish between the two. What's the difference between for you between motivation and inspiration? Real simplistically, motivation is for short-term success. Inspiration is for long haul wealth sustaining brands. Real Love simple. It. Motivation is a, you will eventually, you will burn out. Yep. Or like we said before we started recording, you will chase monetary things that mean nothing. Finances, cars, homes, all those things. If you're inspired and doing it the right way, that will come in time. But if you're trying to just get motivated for those things solely, you might get them like I got them with my construction company. But when I got to the top, 90 days later, it was all pulled out from under me because I was motivated, not inspired to make a change. Yep. And we'll talk about your company in a second. I just want to finish up with your family history because I think it's so interesting. So success runs in your family. Obviously, your father and your grandfather and your brother was a Hall of Famer. What was that dynamic like with your brother and even your father? Was there like, like a competitive nature? Was your dad living vicariously through the boys? Like what, what was that dynamic? Because I'm sure it was competitive in, in some way, right? It was, but not like you think because my brother is six and a half years older. We didn't have that. And my dad was actually a phenomenal dad when it came to that. He didn't force us to play. He said, if you want to play, you play. If you don't want to play, that's fine too. And I really feel because of the way he approached the game, trying to get us to do it if we wanted to do it, it made us want to play the game more and it made us appreciate yep. how much the game actually means and what it can do for your life during your career, after your career, that's why I feel we were really streamlined towards success when it came to what we do as football players or what we did as football players. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, so many families just go through a real heartache 
when there's competitive, there's a competitive nature with the kids and the father and all of that. So that's awesome. So, you know, psychologists say that uh, there's no more important event in one's life, and especially in, in, in a men's life, than the death of their father, right? So tell us how your father's passing in, in 2006 was such a turning point in your life. Well, losing him unexpectedly after open heart surgery, when we thought he was, well, he made it through open heart surgery, he was recovering in ICU, thought he was getting better. I guess the last time I saw him that day, I guess that evening he took a turn for the worse. And I got to the, I got a phone call from the hospital at like, I want to say like 205. 2.10 in the morning, somewhere around there. And by the time they told me what was going on, he went to cardiac arrest. I got up out of the house. It was like 3.20. A hour and a half ride took me about an hour and five minutes. So I got there right about 3.20, 3.25, went up to the hospital, was trying to see him, figure out what's going on. And then the doctor came out and told me he was pronounced dead at 327. So I missed him by like two minutes, give or take. What was the last conversation you had with him? It was actually, it was very short. Um, I came to see him after open heart surgery. He was recovering, doing well, so I thought. And I was trying to stay with him to watch something on TV and all that, but he was very tired. So he asked me to please leave because he wanted to get some rest. And I was like, what? Like I just drove an hour and a half to get here and I'm here for five minutes and you want me to go home. But I said, all right, that's fine. And I said, you know, dad, I'll respect it. Not, not thinking anything else, I'll see you tomorrow. Well, I never, tomorrow came and gone. Tomorrow came, but he was gone. So it's, 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 you know, one of those things where for years, you all years, I did not forgive myself for years talking about probably a good five to seven years. I just, even though I was successful in business and all, everyone I met my fiance, all the stuff, dated the people and all that. I still never forgave myself. Forgave yourself on what? For not being there with him longer that time, the last time I saw him, for allowing him to tell me to leave and doing it. When I should have said, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay for an hour, hour and a half, watch something with you, be here. Because, you know, I just assumed tomorrow would come, he'd be here. But sometimes you make assumptions like that, it's hard. And then also, I didn't, I was also upset at myself for agreeing to allow him to have the open heart surgery, then I knew there was a risk, but there was a greater risk if he didn't have the surgery. Yeah. But I always kept second guessing myself for years. Well, what if we didn't have the surgery? Would he still be here? What was quality of life have been? It, you know, for I played devil's advocate for so many years after that because you just really don't know. You just really don't have an idea of what is gonna happen tomorrow. So that's why I was to struggle with myself. My inner struggle came from not allowing myself to say goodbye to my father when I should have fought him and stayed no matter what. This happens so often with so many you know, people and individuals. And if this is a lesson or maybe nothing happens by accident and just us, I wasn't planning on speaking about this, but I think, say your piece, tell them you love them because tomorrow is not guaranteed by any means. And, nope. and I, th I think if you had to, to provide a, a golden nugget to the audience, to the listeners, you would probably say that as well, wouldn't you? Oh, oh, absolutely. Like let people know today how you feel because tomorrow is not promised and you have no idea if somebody is going to be here or not. No idea. So say your piece, that way you can just live with it in your heart. Fair warning, people. All right, so when you left, so that actually started this downward spiral, right? So when you left, that was 2006, 2007, you left the NFL, right, the following year? I came back, played one year, and then after that, I ended up leaving the end of the 07, beginning of 08 season, and I was done between my injuries and just having all this different type of negative 
mental issues and having no clarity, no focus. My body could not perform at the level necessary. And I made the decision that it was time to move on. So physically you were ready, but mentally were you ready to leave? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, it, it was all I knew for since I was, what, 13 years old? So for like yeah. 14, 15 years of my life, that's all I knew. Football in high school, college, NFL, the camaraderie, the locker room, the guys, the team. That's all I knew. So once that was gone, I felt a huge part of me was gone. Was that, a, was that your first bottom? Uh, yeah, father passing away and then the NFL that following year, that was a real, they were pretty close to get closely connected, but that was my first major real rock bottom moment. Yep. Did, did you have a plan or were you like, I have no clue what I'm going to do right now? No, 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 no. I mean, I had good money saved up, but for six months, you all, it was nightlife, gambling, addiction, drinking, going to bed at like four or five o'clock in the morning, wake up at like one or two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, trying to find a poker game, trying to find somewhere to go, you know, just no purpose, like just no passion, no blueprint, no ambition, no drive, just going through life aimlessly, hoping that the day something fun happens because there is no plan. There is no there's no, there's no forward progress. There's no direction in my life. You know, it's funny because you are so ambitious. You are so driven. Why do you think you didn't have a plan? Why do you think you didn't pick up and do something? Why did you want to self-sabotage at that time? Because I was not prepared. Like I didn't have the who I am today. I was not that person back then. I was not confident, ambitious, driven, I was solely focused on a game that divorced me, the National Football League. And without that type of, you know, where to go, where to be, time, what time to be there, without that structure, without that clarity, it was just like, wow, I literally have no idea what to do with my life. So you're gambling, you're drinking, you're partying. I'm sure it was a lot of fun, but... It's also very taxing. And so what happened and what prompted you to become an entrepreneur? Because that's a big shift from NFL to you know self-sabotage to now I'm starting this company, Caden Premier Enterprises. What happened? Were you ready? <laughs> so I woke up one morning and I had a tattoo on my right arm that I really <laughs> don't even remember getting. It's a huge tattoo. And I was like, did I get this? And so I realized I drove there intoxicated, got the tattoo intoxicated, got drunk, even more drunk at the tattoo parlor, and then got home by some grace of God, I don't even remember how I got home. And when I woke up that morning, I said, wow, if I don't make a change, not all the tattoos, but the way in which I got this tattoo, I don't make a change, I'm not gonna be here very long. And here's what I really thought to myself, my father's legacy are a huge part of it will die with me if I go now. And that's when I said enough's enough. And I founded a construction company, Caden Premier Enterprises, put a lot of hard work in, a lot of sacrifice in. And by 2011, we were the largest African-American subcontracting company in the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland for two years. That's crazy. That's incredible. So as a first time entrepreneur, you built a sustainable enterprise, which is obviously no small feat. I mean, you've done two really incredible feats, right? Forget about the self-sabotage for a second. You became a pro and now you started a company and it became an extremely successful company. What do you think he did right? And then what happened when success came your way and why did it eventually fail? So what I did right was I hired the right people, put the right team in place to build a massive organization. And why it crumbled was as success came my way, my ego, my, my just thinking I knew everything, my whole persona, that's a good word, yeah. got just huge, humongous. I was so egotistical I couldn't even be in the same room with anybody else because there was no room for me, my ego, and anybody else. As a result of that, my best employees left the organization. 
That in conjunction with taking on a big project and spending about between two to three million dollars of my money in 90 days unexpectedly and getting my change order work denied by the general contractor and the developer, that sent me into a chapter seven complete bankruptcy in 2013. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. So in summary, you went from a rich and famous celebrity to a rich and successful entrepreneur and then nearly homeless and broke with $1,000 in the bank. So tell us about that roller coaster and how that was for you. End of the entrepreneurial career and then the downfall from there. So when I moved to Raleigh, I had $400 to my name, 400 bucks after moving and everything to get here. And I'll never forget this. I was working at Merrill Lynch for a short time. I got fired after two months, all my fault. Went to a construction company the next day, fired from that job five days later. Wow. Two times in the same week, I'm fired. And I was working as a football trainer trying to start a business. You know, it was for scraps, but it was got me something going. And I'll never forget when all of my kids stopped coming to training because of football season made me realize, wow, I don't make enough to keep this going. So then I tried to apply different jobs. Nobody was hiring. I'm overqualified. I heard it all. And then one of my clients had a janitorial business, told me she was looking for help. Immediately, I said, what do you pay? She said, I pay $8 an hour. I said, well, when can they start? So they can start next week. I said, you've got your employee. Took the job. The best she could do is she gave me $8.25 an hour. And that's when I took that job. I was working from 10 p.m. till 5 a.m. on the graveyard shift. And that's when I had my rock bottom moment of clarity. It was a specific moment as a custodial worker, which prompted and realigned and reshifted the rest of my life. Yeah, that, I, I definitely want to delve into that moment where you had that clarity but isn't it amazing the ego will just get you every fucking time, man? It's just going to it's gonna happen. Tell us about that moment where you were sitting on, I guess it was outside with your hands over your face, right? What, what happened there? So I was a custodian and I was taking the trash out like I normally did on my shift. And there was a rip in the front side of the bag. And I went to, it was like 4.30 in the morning. I went to throw it in the trash. I didn't see the rip. All that trash, that rotten meat, that nasty, protruding, horrible smelling garbage got all over my body, my skin, and my clothes. And that was the rock bottom moment of clarity when I went, well, I stood right by the trash can, picked everything up, cleaned myself off to the best of my ability, and I was so defeated so demoralized that I sat on the curb right by the trash can. I put my head in my hands and I started to cry. And what I realized, you all, is that all the things I had done in my life between April 2013 and up to that moment was all victim mode. Mm. Poor Marcus, feel sorry for Marcus, this, that, and the other. It was all victim mode. And that's when I realized okay, if I'm going to get out of this, it's going to start and end with Marcus. No knight in shining armor is coming to save you. Nobody's going to give you a handout. People don't care about your problems. They have their own. How can you get going? It's going to be you and you alone. And that's how I got started. We have so many parallels. I swear you're a my brother from another mother, for sure, because I remember 2010, I'm sitting in my room. I was about to lose everything around in the same situation as you saying, what the hell did I do with my life? And I was about to start blaming everyone, you know, that victim mentality. My partner, you know, my wife, the, the weather, I mean, everything was, was, I was able to blame everything. And I said to myself, you know what? What is it about me that made this happen in my life, right? That put this situation in front of me. And I, I, since I asked that question, I never looked back. And I'm telling you, that's why you're successful today. That's why what happened to me happened is because we took responsibility. We took action. 
and we did it consistently over time. And that's awesome. Kudos, kudos to you. What was your brother saying at that time when you were, you know, in, in this situation? He didn't really know. I mean, I never told him how bad it really was because it was not his problem. It was not something that he needed to help bail me out of because everybody said, well, Marcus, why don't your brothers write you a check for half a million, million dollars? I said, well, okay, what does that teach me? Okay, here's a half million dollars. Okay, great. I didn't earn it. I didn't really do anything for it. It's like, oh, here's a bailout. Like, that's not how you do things. You need to get out there and you need to fix your own issues. And that's what I did. And yes, it took time. I started September 2013. Here we are, October. So eight years and a month later, here I am today. But I'm self-sufficient, self-sustaining. All the people on my team, we brought them in. We work together. We built this. It's not something that was handed to me, given to me. Nobody bailed me out of anything. You know, they say growth is the precipice to happiness, you know, and you had all the material possessions that you can probably ever dream of at one point in your life. Do you think that did you, at any time did that make you happy or do you think that true happiness comes from not having to go back to your brother for support and building it all up yourself and seeing that that growth cycle and that determination come into fruition from your own desires and your own actions. That's exactly what drives me every single day. Nobody helped me with this except for my team as I started to bring them on and be, and they came in as part of solving uh, solving issues. They are solution solvers. My team is amazing people. But make sure we understand nobody handed me these people. We had to go through life and make mistakes and had to learn our way and all these moving parts. So for me, real happiness has come from doing this on our own and adding our team members over time and then turning things around to where we are today and helping others do the exact same thing. Because again, money comes and goes, but relationships and your ability to make money is what you need to make sure always stays with you. So wise. So you're sitting there crying. What happened next? How did you get from there to writing a book? And your first book, I believe, was Sleepless Nights, uh, The NFL of Business and Family, correct? Well, correct. And so really from there, like we were working different jobs. I had different main jobs, football trainer, birthday clown at birthday parties for football, seven on seven camps, all these different things. Speaking was my side hustle. I did it when I could. No paid jobs for two and a half years, but I kept moving along, kept moving along. Then the first book came out in 2015, October when we got with uh, VIP Inc. Publishing and they helped us to craft that book, craft that message. And then from there, we were able to move forward and get things going. And that's how the first book came about. So that book gave you the platform to actually be able to charge for your yes. speaking engagements? Correct. Okay. So another success, because it was a best-selling book, if I recall. Correct? It was, correct. Okay. And then you wrote another book, a second book. Where, where, did, where did that come uh, the success cycle was really written to show people three main things that I did in my life that we did with our brand to get ourselves back where we wanted to go. Ambition, create your blueprint, drive, be inspired or motivated in all you do work-wise, and hard work. Focus on yourself and not the competition. Man, that's, that's awesome. What do, you, what do you think your why is? What gets you out of bed in the morning? My why, our mantra, inspire you to take accountability. That's our five-word mantra. It never changes. If you're trying to be accountable in life, in sports, in business, in professional, whatever you're trying to be accountable in, our brand is really focused on inspiring you to take accountability. So your why is inspiring others to take accountability in their actions for success, correct? Correct. To summarize, you know, looking back on the highs and lows, you know, what would you say, because you got a lot going on. I mean, it's a huge story. I could probably speak with you 
for about a week in terms of diving into each specific area. But looking back, the highs and lows, what would you say the secret to success is for the entrepreneur out there who's who's maybe going through a difficult time, maybe uh, their business failed, maybe they're having issues with their relationships right now, things you've been through. What do you say? Be authentic. I have had struggling businesses, came fail. This one had many struggles. It did not get it overnight. I've had marriage issues. I've been married now for, it'll be six years next uh, in May. Is that correct? No, excuse me. We've been married for six years. It'll be seven years in May of next year. But now my relationship is perfect because I've had to go through the hard times, the shit show, the, the, the lack of money, the frustration and the arguments over spending and this and that and that and this. So I'm not going to tell you that my relationship now that's very good, like I said, I, to me, it's perfect. I'm not going to tell you that it was always that way because it wasn't. I had to go through a lot of stuff fixing me. And what I will say is when you are authentic, that's when the magic happens. And for me, I have to be authentic in my speaking, my coaching, my consulting, my marriage, my being a father and being a friend. And once I started being authentic all across the board, no holds barred, holding no punches back. Like I, was, I just told the seven hatters, I haven't spoke to my mom in almost nine years. That's not something I've made up trying to like make my story more interesting. Like that's the real truth. Like when I lost everything, she said that I was a failure. I shouldn't have gone into this. I said, well, you never supported me. And what do you, what, what do you care? It's like not your money and you don't have to worry about this. Well, I'm the one getting these little letters. She was attorney letters from people. I'm like you're getting letters and I'm trying to fend for my life here and trying to figure out if I'm going to be homeless. Let's put it into perspective. And she said, well, you're never going to be anything. I said, well, look, I'm no longer going to call you and have you go with me like this. Bye. That was mm. nine years ago. Wow. Nine years ago. And so, well, eight and a half, almost nine. It'll be nine in April of next year. So authenticity is what really makes or breaks great people, period. I mean, so wise. Is, is authenticity kind of the cornerstone of the success cycle? What did you write about? There's, it, talk, it talks about ambition, drive, hard work off the foundation of being authentic and being okay with who you are. That's what it's about. Because once we help people figure out or to help them identify that it's okay to be you, to be different, to be unique, that's great. Be okay with that. Don't be ashamed of being authentic and being you. There's a lot of power in your own story. Would you do it over again? Would you would you rewrite that story exactly the same? And if not, what would you change? I wouldn't change a thing because, you know, hard times make great people. Hard times are going to make you who you are. And hard, as I say, hard times, they can come, they can go. Tough people are always going to be right there. So for me... Without the story, you all, I couldn't help it because I couldn't tell you what to look out for because I would not have had those failures. So without the failures, our business today is not what it is. Marcus, we survived 100% of our worst days, didn't we? All day, every day. We're All day, right every here. day. We're getting it done. When a lot of people have not, or they throw the towel and they get upset, I don't, I'm not going to tell you don't get upset. Life is upsetting at times. But have I hope your audience gets this more than ever. If you're going to have difficult days, which we all do, have a bend but never break mentality slash mindset. If you can do that, no matter what you face, you can get up, go through it the next day, and do it all over again. Man, I love your story. So I like to close out my interviews with the following question. Okay. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your success today? I had to stop being ego-driven Marcus with Caden. I had to start being authentic Marcus, who he was from birth. Plain and simple. Because my ego got me to be who I didn't need to be. Now today, all the success I have, things I'm going through, to me, 
I'm just plain old Marcus. That's who I am. There's no thought leader. There's no you know expert. I don't need any of that stuff. I'm just Marcus. That's who I am. And I'll never change that thought process ever again. Well, I'm sorry that your mom doesn't get to appreciate you and, and, and be with you uh, as I think you know she would benefit from. And I know your dad's looking down and he's very proud. So tell the seven hatters, you know, what you're currently up to, how they can get in touch with you. Give them the 411. So I am currently a national, international keynote speaker, executive coach, uh, best-selling author, consultant, brand ambassador. And I have a podcast called The Levin Market Show that I co-host with my co-host, Leverett Ball. We're doing extremely well in that category. And then they can get in touch with me by going to our website, www.marcus, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S, Ogden, O-G-D-E-N.com, or shoot me an email, marcus at marcusogden.com. Let's connect, let's chat, and let's kind of see how we can uh, help each other grow. Absolutely. I'll put everything, all the links in the show notes. What's the podcast about? It's really about just interviewing great people with great stories that can share their ups, their downs, athletes, retired athletes, business professionals, executives, reality stars. It's a whole diverse mix. But the theme is great people with great stories that can help what? Our audience get better in their everyday lives. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, Marcus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on The Seven Hats. One of my favorite episodes. I admire you. Love it, my friend. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marcus. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And here's my takeaway. Verse 22 in the Tao Te Ching, written by Lao Tzu, has the following saying, The flexible are preserved unbroken. The bent become straight. The empty are filled. The exhausted become renewed. The poor are enriched. The rich are confounded. Therefore, the sage embraces the one. Because he doesn't display himself, people can see his light. Because he has nothing to prove, people can trust his words. Because he doesn't know who he is, people recognize themselves in him. Because he has no goal in mind, everything he does succeeds. The old saying that the flexible are preserved unbroken is surely right. If you have truly attained wholeness, everything will flock to you. Marcus learned the hard way that if you mix uncompromising, inflexible, and ego, you have a recipe for failure. Through an incredible rags to riches to rags to riches story, he learned that the flexible survive and thrive. The bent will straighten, and the straightened will eventually bend. That being humble, having nothing to prove, and becoming his authentic self is the antidote to the ego that lurks in our shadow. Marcus said wisely that life is upsetting at times, but I hope your audience gets this more than ever. If you're going to have difficulties as we all do, have a bend but never break mentality slash mindset. And if you can do that, no matter what you face, you can get up, go through it the next day, and do it all over again. Amen to that. I want to thank Marcus once again for joining us so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success in your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.